Hallelujah. Okay, right. So, for the sake of our um, overview uh, this evening, thinking about Exodus, I'm going to simply keep on referring to a passage, end of chapter 2 to the start of chapter 3. I'm not going to read it now at the beginning, but it's chapter 2, 23 to chapter 3, verse 17, and it might be that you want to have um, that passage uh, out in front of you. We've prayed, Lord, seal our hearts, so I'm going to dive in. I, um, <clears throat> I once heard a speed dating advertisement on a radio station, and it claimed this, if you find no one in your first six months, then we'll give you another six months for free. And it kind of sounds promising, doesn't it? And so just imagine a friend goes on a speed date and um, we'll, we'll call it a bloke. He meets a woman that he likens to and then you ask him, okay, well, what, what, what was she like? And he says, well, she's got brown hair, um, blue eyes, she likes windsurfing and stamp collecting. And then we respond, yeah, great. But that actually doesn't really tell us a huge amount about her, really, does it? It tells us a few things about her appearance, what she likes, but what's she really like? That's what we want to know. Now, I've never been speed dating. Um, I'm, I'm sure some in this room will have been speed dating. I know it's very rushed, and you can't look at, like, three minutes on the clock, and, you blah, 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 and then you move on, blah, 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 and then you move on. Um, hence the term speed uh, dating. Um, Maybe this isn't fair of me, but I kind of feel it puts to death that saying, it's not about the face, but about the personality, <laughs> because there's only so much you can get to know somebody in three minutes. Um, on a side note, if you have found the love of your life speed dating, then please forgive me. <laughs> Might have overstepped the mark there. I wish you long lives of happiness together. But when we're asking the question, what's God really like, then Exodus is a must read. And this book, Exodus, is going to give us more than just a speed date type experience of God. Don't just learn about his appearance, about his face. No, with Exodus, we see the intricate details about his awesome personality. And although the title Exodus in the Greek translation, I'll be telling you a little bit about the translations of all of the names of the Old Testament books, it means the way out. Exodus, the book, is actually a lot more, um, about a lot more than just the Hebrews' escape from Egypt. Uh, one commentator uh, wrote this. He said, in the book of Exodus, the people Israel is born, Torah, you know the first five books of the Bible, Torah is born and with it the Bible, the theology of presence and response to presence is born. So there's a lot going on in Exodus. And it's a great book. I think the big theme is how a holy God can draw alongside a sinful people. We're going to be thinking about that. And as I said, the evening is going to end with us painting a picture of that ourselves as we come to the Lord's table. And remember, it's his blood, Jesus' blood, that allows us sinners to be redeemed and to stand in his presence. So as I mentioned, we're going to look at that one passage, uh, chapter 2, verse 23 through to chapter 3, verse 17. And I hope that as we hone in on that passage, the bigger themes at work in the whole of the narrative, all 40 chapters, um, we're going to get more of a sense about. And for the sake of this evening, I'm going to focus on four facets of God's character. 
And, um, and I believe those facets act as a skeleton for the compelling narrative. So, first little facet then. We learn of a God who is concerned about his people. A God who is concerned about his people. So, chapter 2, verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, so far in my life, I've heard so many people, and I'm sure it's the same of you, saying, don't be silly, of course God doesn't really answer prayers. Ever heard that before? Some of your non-Christian friends? Yeah, oh, it's just coincidence that that's happened, Greg. God doesn't really answer prayers. Just think of all the millions of people around the world praying. If he answered everybody's prayer, what would that look like? You might have heard that before. I wonder whether the Israelites in Exodus, God's chosen people, were starting to think a little bit like that. As the book kicks off, we kind of maybe get that impression. They'd been enslaved by the Egyptians for an awfully long time. They'd been kind of watching the years pass by, one after another, and yet nothing seemed to change. They're supposed to be God's chosen people. They're supposed to be living and feeding off of that blessing. Remember those promises to Abraham in, in Abraham? You know, you're going to be a blessing to other nations. And yet there they are in slavery Instead of being that blessing, they're under oppressive rule. I just wonder, don't you wonder whether the Israelites are starting to think along those lines, starting to question whether there really was this God who was supposed to love them, who's going to answer all of their prayers? Would God save them? Would he not save them? Well, in verse 24, as we just read, we see and read what the Israelites couldn't see, what they didn't know. Their cries out to God were being heard and he was greatly concerned think back to Genesis we saw how this God that we worship is a covenant making God and it's this this covenant which if you remember he, he kind of signs a contract with his people in his own blood I'm never going to forsake you and it's this contract that he remembers this covenant and it means that he cannot help but be concerned about his people. He'd sworn with his own life to stay committed to them. Um, before uh, I had um, my two boys, uh, Joshy and Jesse, um, I remember, I think before I was even married, I remember going to, um, to spending a, work night, a, a night working with some colleagues, and there's a few of us who gathered around this computer, and um, the host was a new parent. Um, he'd just had... Um, his, his first child and there we were all working and he'd gone and put his um, newborn down and he'd used the baby monitor down and put it on the, um, the, the breakfast bar or wherever it was that we were working and uh, we were all having a good time working, working, sharing ideas and um, I like to think that I've got quite good hearing but I didn't hear the kind of little whisper of a, of a, of a faint cry coming through the receiver and all of a sudden my friend's right up whizzing upstairs, cradling the baby, and it's a joy sometimes to see that, that immediacy and that love and just like utter care of a new parent. They've got this little baby that's so precious, so small, and just everything's being poured out on this baby. I know that kind of care myself now with, with Joshy and Jesse, 
But friends, this is similar to God's response in our passage tonight. We're told he hears the Israelites cry and like that parent, he's concerned for them. His heart goes out to them. And the next few chapters in the Exodus tell us exactly how God intervenes to rescue the Israelites. He's a loving God, a caring God. If, if you love the Lord in here, if you're walking with him, never for one second doubt just how much he loves you. There is an intensity of his love toward you. I mean, if, if we felt the fullness of the intensity of that love I mean, we'd be weak, our knees would buckle, we'd fall over. I mean, he loves us so much. He hears your cry, you're his child. So firstly then, um, a God who is concerned about his people. Secondly, another facet of God in Exodus, a God who is holy. We're thinking a little about this last week, and um, uh, Lewis was able to share a lot more on, on holiness than I'll be able to, to back into on one facet. So please do go back and and listen to uh, last week's sermon. But if you were to see a bush on fire, yet none of the bush burning up, you yourself would be a bit puzzled, right? I hope so, because it's just not normal. It's almost as crazy as seeing a fire just hovering in midair. I mean, that's, that's having a conversation at lunchtime about Pokemon Go. I don't know if any of you know Pokemon Go, but it's like this kind of cyber game, but it's also based in kind of reality. Apparently, we have some kind of monster in this church um, that people will find on their phone, and it was quite dangerous when it first got launched, I think, back in 2016, because you had kind of people walking off cliffs trying to, trying to find these things on their phone. Um, but it would feel a little bit Pokemon Go-esque if you just saw a fire hovering in in broad daylight, just hovering there. And, and so we can understand why Moses is so puzzled, can't we? When he sees this sight, we can sympathize with his thought. Chapter three, verse three, he sees this thing and he says, hmm, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Well, little does Moses know that he has just met with the living God. Doesn't it blow your mind? things we think are impossible, a burning bush without anything being burned up, uh, walking on water, the things we think are impossible are perfectly possible with God who created all the laws of nature and therefore isn't constrained by them. God is holy. He's completely different from us. He's able to do all things, everything. And that's why he set apart as we can see, verse 5, chapter 3, he says to Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you're standing is holy ground. Now, don't get me wrong. God wants for Moses to meet with him. But because of God's holiness, Moses has to be warned. You know, nobody can just enter into God's presence. Sometimes we think that we can and, and God's just, just really laid back and cool and we can just kind of, hands in pockets, and we could just waltz into his presence. The message here is you've got to be careful. You'd be zapped. Don't just, you, you need to get the, 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 the hard hat on and the high-vis jacket. You need to see the high-voltage signs. 
God is holy, he's set apart, he's, he's, he's dangerous in one sense. For Moses to be able to speak to God, he needs to be obedient to him and act. He needs, in this point, to simply remove his sandals. I mean, that's what God's asking for him there and then. Just because God is so awesome, he needs to be approached with caution. I don't know if we preach on this enough in church. I mean, we know we have the access and we're going to come to that, but sometimes we fail to appreciate his awe, his power, the sense of right fear that we should have before him. And here in Exodus, we're learning this really important biblical principle, and that's this. We come to God on his terms, not on our own terms. God is holy and therefore he, he cannot be around sinner, uh, sin. He's holy. And therefore for us uh, sinners, I put my own hand up, to draw near to God, we desperately need to have our sin removed. And yet, friends, because he is holy and just, it still needs to be dealt with. He can't just click his fingers, oh, don't worry about that, that's fine. Because he is so impartially just, think of law courts, a punishment has to be made. And so here in Exodus, at this point, we welcome the Jewish sacrificial system. You could say it begins with the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. It's the last of God's 10 plagues, but it's the means of the Israelites' rescue from Egyptian slavery. In every Israelite household. A lamb is sacrificed in place of the firstborn. It's done in a very precise way. The blood is then uh, smeared uh, upon the, the door frame of the Israelite homes to protect the firstborn son. The lamb, if you like, acts as a, a personal substitute in place of the son. And this is why it was so key. Unless an Israelite family actually heard and said, yeah, I'm going to act on this. Unless they'd done that, then there would have been wailing in that household, just like there was in all of the Egyptian family households when they woke up that morning, the next day, to find all the firstborn sons of those Egyptian households dead. That's what happened. This is, we've spoken about the different literary genre, but this is also a history book. It happened. It's important that we understand God's terms, if you like, that we come to him on his terms, not just on our own, that we don't treat him as just all matey and not almighty. We need a substitute. And as I said, the whole way through the Bible, there's going to be pointers to Jesus. And when you hear Passover lamb, immediately we're thinking, Jesus, the lamb of God, who, like the Passover lamb, dies in our place. It's amazing news, but friends, it's incredibly humbling. And again, I, I don't know if you're anything like me, but sometimes when I'm, I'm worshiping God in church and I come into the Lord's table, I'm just like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I forget that it's actually really humbling because it's saying, Greg, you needed the sacrifice of Jesus, the Son of God, to be forgiven. You haven't brought anything to the table yourself. You haven't earned it. In fact, the only thing that you've brought to the table is the sin for which he was sacrificed. And I think it's really, really important that we, we find the cross humbling. 
because it's from that place that we can understand just how much he really must love us. It's through the humbling that we can understand how overflowing we are as children of God with his love. And I think it's that, that understanding of his utter holiness which also quells any pride. And I guess that's why verse six of chapter three is there for Moses. It says, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So, firstly, he's concerned. Secondly, he's holy. Third facet, in Exodus, we learn of a God who dwells among his people. Just have a look at verse eight of chapter three. In verse eight, God says to Moses, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. So you see that God's holy, He cares for his people, but he cares for them so much that he gets in amongst them to rescue them. It's the in amongst that we're thinking about here. And and even more amazing that he uses people like you and like me to achieve his plans. Thinking a little bit bit about this morning, um, the, the, the gnawing internal dialogue sometimes we have when we're just overwhelmed by a sense of self doubt. We kind of hear those words, Greg, you're not good enough. You're not capable. You can't do it. You can't make that jump. You're a fraud. Everybody knows it. That's kind of how Moses is feeling in this part of Exodus. Chapter 3, verse 11, he says, but Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out, Israel out of Egypt? He's saying it like, just a doubt, like, how can I do this? Are you seeing something in me that I'm not noticing about myself? Because I feel utterly worthless. See, when God asks Moses to go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt, it's understandable why he feels incapable. And that's because if we'd read the whole of Exodus, we'd know that in chapter two, he'd tried to make things right in his own strength. You remember, he'd, he'd, he'd tried to, to side with the Israelites It had ended up him murdering an Egyptian and then fleeing for his life, running from Pharaoh who was trying to kill him. He'd flee to Midian. And so we can sympathize in one sense with Moses. He's frightened. He doesn't think he's up to the job this time. I've tried it before, God. Who am I? I can't do this. Not up to it. Not worthy. He's scared. Now, when one of us says a similar thing to Moses, maybe you've said it to a loved one before, you've been really wanting to try and do this thing, but then you've said to a loved one, Look, I, just, I don't think I can do it. I don't have the courage, I don't have the strength. Most of the time, the response is either positive or negative, I reckon. Most of the time, your friend, a loved one, will either say to you, it doesn't matter. Just don't, don't worry about that. Or they'll be positive and they'll be like, yes, you can, go for it, you can do it. You've got the gifts. God here responds in an altogether different way. And it's pretty amazing. Chapter 3, verse 12. This is God's response to Moses' feeling of inability. He said, verse 12, but I will be with you. See the slight difference there? God's saying, yeah, I hear you, Moses. But it's not about you, it's about me. 
My plans have never relied on you, but on me. You know, your inadequacy, I think you're pretty good and you're going to be able to do it, but even so, your feelings of inadequacy doesn't matter because my complete capability will be with you. So reassuring. Some of you, I know I at times in my life, but some of you right now need to hear God saying to you, but I will be with you. However, if Exodus teaches that God dwells with individuals like Moses in an empowering way, then Exodus also teaches the much greater truth that God dwells with all of his people in a personal way. And so just thinking about quite a large chunk of the book, chapters 25 through 40, um, I don't know if you found those chapters easy or hard reading, but they're quite dull chapters for most 21st century readers, and that's because they're all about measurements and dimensions of this thing called the tabernacle. Uh, Basically think, you know, huge tent. Nowadays we might associate a huge kind of bell tent. Um, You're seen in the nicest of glamping sites, even a fancy marquee at a posh wedding, something like that. If we don't understand the implications this tabernacle had for the Israelites then those chapters, they really will be quite laborious, tedious, and boring for us. We might think of those chapters um, that they could only be appreciated by carpet fitters. Um, (laughs) Sorry if you're a carpet fitter, but I've found all the carpet fitters that I've ever met, they always have like a ruler in their back pocket. They just love measuring things. And so they'd presumably love these chapters of Exodus. You've got a carpet fitter in your life, and you're saying, well, which book of the Bible should I... Shall I point them to? There we go, chapters 25 through 40 of Exodus. But when we realize that this tabernacle speaks of God's presence, and if we recognize that the measurements have to be so precise because our God is so precise down to the smallest of details with the way he created this world and the way he loves you, and we relate to him on his terms, not our own, then all of a sudden those chapters become seriously exciting. God was said to dwell with his people in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, the most important place in the tabernacle. And that tabernacle was right in the middle of all of the camps of the different tribes of Israel. In other words, God is right at the heart of his people. When they traveled, he's with them, present with them, leading them by a big cloud by day or by a big pillar of fire by night. And when Moses spoke with the Lord in the tent of meeting, his face became so radiant that he had to wear a veil. See, even though we might um, see chapters 25 and 40 as, as the low, boring point of Exodus, not comparing to the dramatic narrative of the 10 plagues or the parting of the Red Sea, believe it or not, it is in fact the high point of the book. It might mean that just next time you read Exodus, you think, actually, these chapters... Yeah, they're hard, but they're the high point of the book. It shows us that a holy God, remember the high voltage signs, the power, a holy God chooses, he chooses himself to dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Covenanted himself to us in such a way. And friends, the amazing thing about the whole of the Bible story, once again, that big scope, is that in the Greek, John's gospel literally says that Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us. Jesus goes on to teach that by his spirit, 
He sets up home in each of his followers, in each of our hearts. His spirit tabernacles within us. Exodus, this book, it foreshadows the God who's willing to tie himself so closely to his people that he comes to live within them. That is how close God wants to get to you. And again, it's not just, it's not just humbling, it's, it's scary for some of us to think that actually God wants to get that close to us. Some of us, you know, quite insecure about how we feel about ourselves. Would somebody want to love me that much? God really does. And already now he's behind all of those insecurities and he's just loving on you and loving on you. Maybe as a, as a, as a Christian, you know, we're still scared of, of dark alleys. Well, again, Jesus is with you by his spirit, the spirit of truth and light in that dark alley. You're walking along at nighttime with no street lamps. He's there. Some of us tempted to feel alone and, and maybe at times that feeling is quite overpowering. But I'll tell you now, they're just feelings. As a child of God, you're never alone because the Holy Spirit lives within you. God is present in your life. Not a day goes by when he doesn't journey with you. Fourthly and finally, our last facet of God's character for this evening. He's a God who lets himself be known. God who lets himself be known. Verse 13 of chapter three. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And before we can understand God's reply to this question, we have to understand that in Moses' time, names had meaning. Some of you will know some of the, the Bible name meanings. So Jacob, you know, it means to deceive. And we see how he deceives Esau out of his birthright. Gregory, if you didn't know, I, I'm told means to stay awake. And I think it's from like the shepherds watching their flocks by night. I think there were some, some great Gregory shepherds maybe. Um, but I just feel for all of the Gregories who suffer with insomnia like myself, and I think it's the curse of the name. <laughs> anyway, names had meaning. So when Moses asked God's name, he's basically saying to him, God, what do you mean? What's your character? What's your purpose? And God's reply is brilliant. Because it kind of stumps us. Verse 14, key verse in Exodus. God said to Moses, I love this. I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And we're like scratching our heads, probably like Moses. First time we read this. I know you've heard loads of sermons on this before, but try and remember the first time you heard this. And you're like, what? What are you saying, God? And it's only when we really read the, the next few verses after verse 14 that any of it makes sense. And God basically says in verses 15 to 17, he says, tell the Israelites, I'm the same Lord that there has always been. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of the living, the God that always will be. I'm the one who's been watching you and will rescue you as I've promised. I am who I am. You see, God doesn't just reveal himself in one or two words, but in actions. God says, I am who I am. Or the footnote in your Bible, I will be who I will be. And therefore, if you want to know me, just, 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 just watch me. 
You can't demand a speedy encounter. I'm going to give you so much more than a speed dating encounter. If you want to truly know me, watch me. Watch how intensely personal I am. Uh, Quite simply, Exodus could be said to split into three parts. So you've got the rescue from Egypt, chapters 1 to 19. The giving of the law, chapters 20 to 24. And then the tabernacle, 25 to 40. And that middle section, I haven't really mentioned anything about tonight, the giving of the law. But it is just more of God showing himself to be intimately involved in our lives. He wants to be intimately known. So if you just think of any of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, for example. It's not just the command. We're learning something about God behind the command. If he's not into adultery, what is he into? He's into faithfulness. Thou shalt not lie. What does that teach us about God? He's teaching us that he's about truth and he loves truth. Thou shalt not kill. Why? Because I'm a God all about life. You see, he's just telling us more about himself in this book of Exodus. What a gift. Sometimes I wish that I'd had a dictaphone or a notepad um, for various like profound conversations that I've had in the past so that I could have written down maybe that it's not just a case of your word against mine. I've actually got what you said here. Well, God's so happy to be known in that way, to be taken at his word, that he is the first person who writes anything down of the Bible. And he's written the Ten Commandments with his finger in Exodus. He's basically saying to you tonight, to me and you, take me at my word. I've only touched on four facets of God's character in this book, but it's these facets which I think dictate the shape and and content of this epic read. And um, as I conclude, I feel like today I'm constantly saying to my friends, you know, Christianity, it's, it's, it's more of a relationship than a religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus. But friends, the groundwork for that is, is laid here in Exodus. God wants to be known. He reveals his intimate name as Yahweh. And he reveals his character in his law in a way that speed dating cannot compare And over a thousand years after the events of Exodus, we're told in John's gospel that somebody else uses the title, I am. Jesus comes along and he says in John chapter 8, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying, this God, that's who I am. I mean, God says, I am who I am few hundred years after Abraham received those promises. And yet thousands of years later, Jesus says, even before Abraham had said, I am, I am. Sometimes we see Jesus as little meek and mild Jesus with a little halo around his head on our Christmas cards. He is the great I am. The high voltage son, you can't just waltz into his presence, but he loves you so much that he's willing to step into our messy world and die on a cross for us. We're gonna sing praise to him now. And then at the end of that praise, we're going to come and remember just how intimately he loves us by shedding his blood for us on the cross as we remember his death in the bread and in the wine. And when I say those words and follow said those words, this is the bread, the body of Christ for you, the blood of Christ which is shed for you. Remember that was done for you because he loves you. Let's praise him now.